This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, I thank you that you communicate to us uh, in stories. Um, I thank you, Lord, that your beloved son uh, was incarnate and walked on the face of this earth. And um, we can relate to the eternal God. We can relate to your glory and your majesty and your your love and your care and your concern for us because we can see it in the face of Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning as Jesus is um, warning us about repentance and, and kind of everything that that means, Lord, that we would take those things to heart. I pray that we would see the words of Jesus as coming from a God who sacrificed himself, loves us, cares for us, and desires us to be part, um, desires us to be part of his community as we are one with him as he is one with the father lord i pray that you would give me clarity i pray that you would give us wisdom to discern so that we could enjoy repentance so that we could pursue repentance so that we could cause you to rejoice as we come back into your presence lord yeah orient our minds around that so we can honor you in your name i pray amen So this morning, uh, we're, we're kind of heading our way towards that parable, and I thought I would just read it to kind of refresh us a little bit, but we're going to start back in chapter 13 and kind of make our way through a couple of chapters, looking at the things that are on Jesus's mind, the things that Jesus is sharing with the crowds, the way uh, Luke, the author, is kind of piecing these stories together and bringing us along, and then I think illustrating something really clearly in uh, the prodigal son. So there's, a, there's an order to this. There's, uh, these stories are sort of pieced together to make a point uh, to encourage us and to teach us something. And this morning, we're going to talk uh, essentially about this idea of repentance. And it's one of those Christian-y words that we... Uh, maybe it's actually one of those christian words that we don't throw around... <laughs> We're like, that's one we kind of like have back here. Um, we know about, <clears throat> and maybe we, we say, or, or uh, we, you know, I was, I was actually reading uh, a blog post, and someone was like, basically, the only time we think of repentance is that quiet time before we take communion. <laughs> you know, like, like we've been confronted with some truths about God, so we kind of, we kind of in our heads think about some of the things maybe we are not viewing appropriately and consider those things uh, before we go and partake in communion. And, and he was saying that's a good thing. We should do that. That's, that's a, an aspect of that. But it's not something we, it's not a sort of an idea that we throw around a lot. But it's interesting in these chapters, uh, 13, 14, and 15, Jesus brings up repentance quite a bit. He brings up repentance quite a bit. I'm just going to tilt this. This is new. So then I have to keep walking back. Um, let's look at chapter 13. I want to read this little section real quick before we get to a definition of repentance. Because this is uh, just another time where you read what Jesus says and you're like, I don't know if I would say it that way. You know, like he says something and you're like, oh, you know, he's Jesus, so he mustn't be wrong. Um, but I'm probably not going to mirror him in this particular respect. Look at verse uh, chapter 13. In Luke, verse 1, he says, There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
Now, it's, the sacrificial system for a Jew is like a, a very important part of their religious experience, right? Like everything is centered around the temple. You have the, the sacrifices on the Sabbath. You have the morning and evening sacrifices throughout the day. And then on top of that, how you treat blood when you're not doing the sacrificial things, how you treat uh, even dead bodies when someone uh, in the family dies, there's rules and there's laws and there's things around that. So anyone that, that eats with the, you know, you couldn't have super raw steak. You know, anyone who eats with the blood, that was like made you unclean. Anyone that touched a body made you unclean. And anything that, that there's even stories in the Old Testament where when you approach and do sacrifices in a way that is not consistent with how God has laid it out, some of those people just like drop dead. You know, there's some seriousness around sacrificing here. So when it says that Pilate mingled blood of Galileans, by the way, who are not Jews, who are unclean with their sacrifices, I mean, you're just piling on the number of like offensive things to God for a Jewish person. This is like everything possibly wrong happened in this particular situation. And so they're telling Jesus about this. And Jesus answered them, do, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? He's almost like bringing up karma, you know, like, hey, because these are unclean Galileans, and is it because they were so bad that this really terrible bad thing happened to them? And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. He points to like the worst situation, the most unclean people, the most offensive thing that could be towards God. And he says, do you think that they were just that bad that all of these bad things happened to them? And he goes, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he gives another example, and I think that helps kind of clarify where he's going. He says, so those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. And that's a, you know, a tower fell down and just randomly killed some people. Sort of, sort of like just this, this thing that happens out of nowhere. I remember when I lived in Golden, this is like the, it was like the, just a story that's like burned in my mind that I, I really couldn't forget. And so I'm sharing it with you, hopefully, well, too late. So when I lived in Golden, there was a family driving under an underpass and one of those metal beams fell and killed everyone. Like that, that's like the craziest set of circumstances and just tragic and also like unnerving and just like of all the cars on the highway that day, of all the things that could be happening, a car is driving under an underpass like it normally does. And one of those big beams comes undone, falls, and takes the family out. Like, that's crazy to me. Like, that, that something like that would happen. And that's sort of what the, the sort of kind of scenario that Jesus is communicating here. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Like, do you think that this karma took out that family in that crazy circumstance. And there are some people I think that genuinely believe that, right? Like we may not go to that extreme, you know, we're kind of 
But we say it like, you know, you get what's coming to you or what goes around comes around. You know, that maybe that person deserved that. You know, like those are things that we kind of throw around. And Jesus is saying, if that's how you think, if that's how you measure yourself against others, you're wrong. He goes, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Amen. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What do you think Jesus means by repent? <coughs> Thomas uh, Watson, there's a couple of Thomases. Yeah, I'm getting a head shake. Thomas Watson defined repentance this way in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Um, it's a great book. Uh, it's actually fairly easy to read for old dead people. Um, and it's free online if you want to look it up in a PDF. It goes through a lot of really... Uh, helpful things in light of that. But I love this definition. It says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit, like a gift, like an undeserved thing that comes from God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. And he's not talking about um, your view of theology, like changed, like your, 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 your lifestyle is, is visibly different than before. So he's saying, as he, and he works this out through scripture, that a, a really biblical definition of repentance includes a handful of things. It's a gift from God, something that comes from God, from the spirit. It's a work of the spirit where we're inwardly humbled. And as we, even as we think about all the things we've learned through the book of Luke, what does God welcome? But he welcomes those who are lowly. He welcomes those who are recognize their need for a savior. He's there to, he says, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not come for those who don't need a physician. I come for those who need help. So he's speaking, he's even speaking to this idea that those who are, who are inwardly humbled, it's a work of the spirit to inwardly humble us, but also to outwardly change us like visibly reformed, something that we can see, something that can change. And what Jesus is saying is he, is he, he brings up these tragic situations, both offensive and sort of almost premeditated by Caesar and also random and scary and just out of nowhere. He's saying, look, when you see these wicked things or you see these things happen in the world that are terrible, He's warning us. He's saying the danger is you're in for the same thing if there isn't repentance. You should be concerned. It doesn't, it's not like you're better than them. It's not like you're worse than them. He's saying you should be concerned. You should fear. You should have some, some real wariness about your life if you don't have repentance. If you don't have repentance. <clears throat> I think that's a fairly serious warning. Like Jesus is being 
very direct with us and saying, this is a big deal. You need repentance. And I like this definition because I think it, my my prayer is that via the spirit, because he's the one who brings repentance, that as you dwell on and think about what it means to be inwardly humbled and outwardly changed, that through the spirit, he would prick your heart, he would convict you, and you would say, man, there are some parts of my life, there are some thoughts that I have, there are some actions that I do where I'm not humbled and I'm not changed. I want you to feel the weight and to really consider, even as a Christian, your need for repentance. And you might say, Aaron, where do I, where do I need change? Where do I need humbled? Like, what is the thing that should be different? And so we're going to walk through a few things with repentance. We're going to look at true repentance. We're going to look at some common excuses. And we're going to look at great rejoicing. True repentance, common excuses, and great rejoicing. So in chapter 13, we'll just keep kind of going in this section here. Jesus encourages repentance and then tells a parable. He's like, look, repentance is a very important thing and we re- all of us genuinely need it. We need this repentance. So let me give you a, a little story to illustrate what I'm saying. In verse six, he says, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, For three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Fair enough. You know, if I planted, uh, if I kept a fruit plant alive for three years, that would be an accomplishment by itself. But if I then kept it alive for three years and got nothing out of it, that would be a bummer. And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. He's like, let me... Let me go the extra mile after three years above and beyond to do everything that I can to ensure that this thing produces fruit. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to the Pharisees. There's a lot of like conflict going on right here. And he gets to this point where he's talking about the fig tree. This is a a, a common illustration in the Old Testament, and Jesus uses it often in the Gospels, of essentially the idea that Israel isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Like Israel is is intentionally the fig tree here. God's saying, Jesus is showing up as the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king of the people of God. And he's showing up and he's communicating all these great truths about the kingdom. He's, he's uh, going from town to town. And in this particular passage, we're like making our way to Jerusalem as we lead up to his death on the cross. And, and there's, there's crowds in the last uh, sermon, we talked about crowds who are like so big, they're trampling each other. And Jesus has all these opportunities to say to God's people, look, here's the kingdom. Look, here's what God requires. Look, this is the important things about the law. Let me, let me plead with you to to embrace 
what God has said and who, he's in, who he is. And I want to see you as a light to the world. Here I am, the king. Jesus showing up and saying all of these things. In Israel, it's just like falling on deaf ears. The people of God aren't getting it. And on top of that, the leaders are antagonistic against the king that has arrived to bring them and to restore the kingdom. So in this particular context, he's actually talking to God's people. He's not talking to the outside world. And I think that's an important context because this, when we think about repentance, it's easy to say, Aaron, I was baptized. Um, I said the prayer. I wasn't a Christian. Now I'm a Christian. I've done the repentance thing. I'm there, you know, like back up off. I'm good. <clears throat> and maybe we don't say that out loud, but... But I think it's easy for us when God confronts us with this idea that we need to turn from sin. It's easy for us to externalize that and say, yeah, there's a bunch of people that need to turn from sin. Like, that's why we're a light to the world. You know, I can think of my neighbors or, or you know, the whole building over there. But, but Jesus' first parable is like, hey, God's people. Hey, the church. Hey, those who would be associated with the Savior. You're the ones that need Repentance. You're the ones that need to bear fruit. And that's where, that's sort of the, the, the main point here is that for God's people, true repentance brings fruit. True repentance brings fruit. Amen. True repentance brings the fruit of peace and joy. There's inward humility and enjoyment with God but also visible reform. There's also fruit of praise to God. There's also fruit of uh, words that bless and don't curse. There, there's fruits of, a, of a, a visible character where you can see that Jesus is actually producing something in us. So, True repentance brings fruit and is from God. True repentance brings fruit and is from God. So I want you to think about that. What is Jesus? Jesus, when he talks about, um, I didn't finish that thought on purpose. Jesus, when he talks about scripture, it's interesting the way he says it to the people. He, he quotes a psalm from like a thousand years earlier and says, have you not read what the Lord has spoken to you? He sees God's word as something speaking directly to you. Here's Jesus talking about repentance, warning about repentance and illustrating that with fruit. Like where's the fruit? Where is God speaking to you right now and saying, it's been years. Where's the fruit? I'm looking for the fruit. I'm looking for the change. Where do you need true repentance? I mean, this is important. 
Think about what Jesus said just before this. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's a serious warning. Where is Jesus looking at you and saying, hey, I don't see the fruit. I don't see the change in your life. Now there's some common excuses. I think the the first one I hear when I talk to people individually who are maybe struggling with something, especially if it's been years of struggling or something, right? Like we, you know, when, when God reveals a sin to us and we're desired to have change, change our hearts and change our actions, and we apply ourselves to his word and we see God work and, and we're different or something is like, uh, it feels like there's, there's uh, life springing out of our hearts and God is transforming who we are. Um, that's encouraging and that's good and that's wonderful and he does those things. But when it's been something, when it's been years and we're struggling with something, a lot of things, the thing that I hear the most, one of the most common excuses is, but it, you, Aaron, you said, you said, Aaron, it's a grace from God. It's a gift from God. True repentance comes from God. So let me know when he shows up because then I'll change. Let me know when he shows up because then I'll change. And I think the crowd is kind of picking up on this idea because he, at least the way Luke puts the story together here, you know, just kind of following the things that he puts in the chapter. He illustrates the point that it's something that comes from God by healing someone on the Sabbath. And they get all upset about that. It's a big deal. But he's like, look what I can do. Look at the the power that I have as king. I can utterly restore someone and completely change their life. There's There's a miraculous, visible reform immediately after this parable. And I think people are kind of picking up on this idea that true repentance, to have real change of heart, to have a real change of actions that's genuine, that's true, where Jesus shows up and says, look, there's the fruit. That's the thing that I'm looking for, and it's there. They're picking up on this idea... They're picking up on this idea that it comes from God. And they say, look at verse 22. This is a, the, one of the next stories that Luke puts in here. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Again, we're in chapter 13, 22, 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like how, like if it's from God, if it's a miraculous thing, if, if we need repentance to enter into the presence of God, how many people does that happen to? I think you're the one that has to make it happen. And it's interesting what Jesus says to them. He doesn't actually answer the question. He doesn't answer the question because I think that's the wrong question and he's graciously trying to redirect us. Verse 24 says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So there will be people who this doesn't happen to. But here's, look at the reason for it. This is fascinating. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, 
when you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will again say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at verse 25. That's kind of like the key point there. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. I mean, the most vivid illustration of this is in the flood. Noah's preaching and, and proclaiming for people to repent for, I think, 150 years while he's building this ark. And he's saying, look, the wrath of God is coming. Repent, turn. <laughs> and they don't. And then the flood comes and the people are freaking out and God shuts the door. God shuts the door. And they're lost. Jesus is saying, he says, Lord, are there many that will be saved? He redirects the question and says, hey, there's time. The door is open. And he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's saying, put forth effort. Just put forth effort. Like, yes, it is in the Lord's hands. Yes, it is a grace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus is the one who has to miraculously change and transform us so that we have true repentance. And if the commonest excuse is, this is impossible, the answer is yes, but Jesus is like, the door is wide open. Just strive to enter in. Strive to enter in. Apply yourself to the things that I've given you because I bless that. Because I'll use your efforts sovereignly in some miraculous way that's hard to put together in our minds. I'll use your efforts as you strive, as you labor, as you move towards the door. I'll use those efforts as a, to then, through the Holy Spirit, as a gift to genuinely bring you repentance. To, to humble you and to outwardly change who you are in a way that genuinely comes from me and from my power. The common excuse might be it's impossible, and the answer is yes, but Jesus is like, the door is open. There is opportunity for the Spirit to work currently, and the door won't always be open. For us individually, we don't know. We don't know when that will be. You know, I love you guys. I hope it's for a long time. <laughs> I want to see someone's kid go to college or something, you know? <clears throat> Actually, I want to see someone's kid grow up to be like you are now so I can like laugh and see how that works itself out. <laughs> that will be the best part. Like, I want that. But someday the door will be shut and Jesus is like, look, it's open right now. Just strive for that and I'll bless those efforts. So, one common excuse is that it's impossible Another common excuse is that we don't have time, and this kind of comes up in the story too. Uh, and you might be saying, oh, what do you mean that we don't have time? You know, like, who doesn't want to, well, how much time does it take to change? Things like that. And I think that when we look at the definition of repentance, 
I said that repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled, invisibly reformed. It actually takes some effort to bring ourselves into the presence of God, to consider what he said in his word, to examine our our own hearts, our own motives, our own intentions, our own lives, and be genuinely humbled by our sin. I think about it like this. Um, There are certain sins where we just feel like failures afterwards, right? Like, like we're, maybe we lied about something. Maybe we got caught up in sexual sin. Um, there's just certain kind of um, sins that no, one, no one's like, like we just like feel like the worst, you know? Maybe we snap back at our spouse in an argument and say something that we know is super hurtful. Like it doesn't take a whole lot to be like, ugh, like I feel like the worst, But there's a lot of sin, Uh, like Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins, you know? There's a lot of sins that we're just like pretty cool with. I think a common one, a couple of common ones, is frustration and anxiety. Like if we don't say something out loud and we're not mouthing off to someone, we were like nailed it, you know? Like, people will really be like, I actually hated that person, and they were the worst, and I wish their death on them, and blah, 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 blah. But I didn't say that. You know, I was just nice. You know, almost like, give me a high five. That, that's offensive to God. Like, how we think of other people, if it's not out of genuine care and compassion and love for them, even if they're just made in the image of God, our hearts should have affections for them. And if they're united to Christ then we should love them like we love our Savior. That's how he loves us. Like he loves us that way, even as we're talking about all the things we like need him to help change us. He cares, like we're the worst. And he's like, I love you. I'm always there for you. I care for you. And he's like, that's how I want you to treat others. In here. And we're like, yeah, but if I don't say it out loud, it's fine. You know, that's like a respectable sin. That's offensive. And it takes some work. It takes some time to be like, why when that happens or that person says that, does everything inside me want to just like punch them in the face? You know, like, like what, is, what is pricking my heart that causes that fruit inside me to just come out even if I like reel it in on the outside? That takes some work and some time to consider those things, to ask God to expose what's going on down here and to bring to the surface the things I'm not believing that are true, that he's communicated so that I could actually then when I'm confronted with that situation, respond like Jesus responded out of genuine love for the other person. Like it takes time and work to pick those things apart. I think anxiety is, I I hope that's not like super controversial, like that's the whole idea behind therapy is that there's not like a quick fix, right? Like it takes time and energy and effort and, and to bring things to light and to surface stuff that is deep down or that's rooted in my past or there's all of these things that are part of who we are as embodied creatures that lead to my anxiety, <laughs> that lead to the fact that I just don't trust God in certain situations. I just don't. That's offensive to him. 
He wants to change that about us. His spirit is powerful. There uh, was an interesting study, study of studies, I don't know how that's called, um, around the fact that uh, in, in, in every which way they could examine this, working out is one and a half times more effective for, I, th- I don't, it could have been depression, it could have been anxiety, for one of those two things than any of the drugs that we prescribe. <laughs> and it's not, and like, that's not even on the doctor's list of things to recommend necessarily when it comes to addressing that. And kind of the point I'm saying is like, you know what else isn't on their list? <laughs> the gospel, <laughs> you know, like, like we have a tool. I'm not dissing on the other tools. Those are important things and we can use what God has given us in creation. We can work out, we can have therapy, we can address certain things medically. Like there's ways that we can approach anxiety and depression that are good, but those are less effective tools than the God himself dwelling in our hearts, transforming us, changing us, giving us true repentance so that we have joy and peace because of the presence of God. Like that tool as Christians should at least be at the top, even as we use some of the other tools to deal with that. But all that stuff takes time. You know, we sent a a blog post out recently about just daily worship. Like if your only exposure to God and his presence and his peace and his joy is right now, a lot, you know, I say if I slept since then, it's hard to remember, right? (laughs) Or we tell the kids three sleeps and then you do this. It's like trying to help them understand. If you have seven sleeps before you remember God again, it's going to be difficult to have peace and joy in your daily life. It takes time. Now, I kind of rambled about that for a long time. Um, but look at chapter 14. This is the point that Jesus is making in this parable. I'm just going to make this parable because a, a common excuse is that it's impossible. And Jesus is saying, look, the door is open, strive for it. Uh, and a common excuse is I don't have time. And this is sort of what Jesus is confronting in chapter 14, verse 12. He says, he said, this is a parable. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a, uh, oh, no, no, let's go uh, to, 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 to verse 15. Sorry, skip. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. (coughs) Jesus saying, let me tell you a story about how the kingdom works. This great and wonderful banquet, this, this, this invitation to come and enjoy the presence and the peace of God. These tools, these things that God has given us so that we can have more peace and joy and have genuine repentance. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. excuse, 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 I don't have time. (laughs) I don't have time for this wonderful banquet of peace and joy and the gospel and the beauty and glory of God because I have all these things I have to worry about. 
relational things, investment things, work job things. And he basically ends the parable and says, okay, fine, I'll go get somebody else. I'll go get somebody else. And I think that's kind of as serious as what Jesus is saying. And I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He's looking for the fruit on the vine and he's offering it and he's laid out this wonderful banquet and we make excuses for it all the time. We make excuses for it all the time. Here is here's kind of the encouraging thing I hope um, I want it to be if you feel a sense of guilt if you feel a sense of shame Maybe you just feel defeated and you're thinking, oh, man, this, is, this hurts. This is like describing me to a T. Or maybe it's like a part of your life where you're like, this is what I avoid in my head because I know that God desires fruit here, but I like all these other parts, you know? Kind of like compartmentalize this. If you really have a sense that there are aspects of your life where there isn't true repentance. There isn't like, there isn't visible reformation. There's not like a change in, in who I am and what I'm doing. And you have a, a sense of guilt and shame around those things. That's inward humility. <laughs> like that's the Holy Spirit. That's God at work to convict you of sin. That's the miracle of the Spirit stirring in you to change you. That's evidence of a supernatural power and a desire from our Heavenly Father to make you different, to give you more peace, to give you more joy. Uh, the gentleman that did the definition of repentance had like... <coughs> six ingredients, you know, to true repentance. There's a part of me that just wanted to like preach the book. Um, it was really long. And Ben has mentioned multiple times that my sermons have been too long lately. So I was like, okay, we're going to reel this in. And I see the timer. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so, uh, but but he, he shows some scriptures and, and, and part of this inward humility comes from genuine guilt and genuine shame of our sin that leads to hatred for our sin. Like we hate it. Someone told me this weekend, I, I know God doesn't want us to hate, you know? Kind of he does sin, you know? Like we should hate that. We should be like, that is the worst. I despise this aspect, this thing in me that makes me not honor and glorify God. 
And as God stirs our guilt and our shame through the spirit and we begin to see sin for what it is, something that just keeps us from God, something that, that we're so stubborn in, something that just like we can't change, he's saying exactly, yes, I know that about you. I'm aware of these things. I died so that you could be exposed to these wicked disturbing things that are parts of your life so that I could bring my spirit and work in you and, and reveal these things to you first. That's like step one in this guy's five and six ingredients. So you could just be aware of where you don't have true repentance and that you would just recognize and understand that because I love you so much, because I'm committed to you, because I gave you your spirit and have united you to Jesus, that my passion and my desire and my zeal as Jesus makes his way to the cross, that same zeal that's just like pushing forward is like to change you Amen. he's committed to that he he is not going to let go nothing can separate us from the love of god not that thing you're not repenting of not anything and as we're we're stirred and we have those the, that guilt and that shame for things that we're not turning from he's saying yes yes that's what i want that's that inward humility bring that to me thank me for my love and my care for you and draw near to me because i desire to change you i desire to transform you i desire to see you bear fruit so that when i come back and say check this vine out that's connected to Jesus. It's bearing fruit and growing. That's what he wants. That's the beauty. That's the, that's the joy that comes from a God who knows where you don't repent and is committed to you. He's committed to you. That's why repentance brings great rejoicing. <clears throat> repentance brings great rejoicing in heaven and on earth. And there's a couple little things as it leads up to the parable of the prodigal son. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, he says now, uh, we'll start in verse one. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Everyone that's not repenting is drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Like, whoa, why is this guy hanging out with the people that don't repent? <laughs> Which is, it's ironic because this is literally the people struggling, saying, look, this is who I am, Jesus. I'm coming to you because I need you to change me. These are people striving to enter the gate while the door is open. So he told them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Amen. Think about that. Think about how encouraging that is. Do you need repentance? <laughs> then you're primed to have heaven rejoice as you strive towards that. Are you happy with where you are and you need no repentance? That's the worst place to be. That's the worst place to be. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not silver coins, by the way, uh, very expensive. <laughs> like losing a silver coin in that day and age would have been like, a big deal. 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it. And when it is found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. <clears throat> when God, when we strive, when we put the time in, when we want to see the Holy Spirit change who we are both inside and outside and he, and he does that for us and we change and, there, and Jesus walks up to the vine and there's fruit, there's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven. It's interesting we could look at Proverbs 28. We could look at Joel 2. We could look at 1 Kings 21. We're not going to do all that. But there's scriptural precedent for when there's repentance and change in God's people, that's when he blesses them even on earth. And this isn't um, prosperity gospel. This isn't like earn something with God. He's just saying that when you turn from disobeying me to obeying me because the spirit in you has transformed you and you're acting more in line with my character, because you live in God's world, it works better. <laughs> it works better. And miraculously enough, anytime there's a major growth in the community, in the, in the Israelite community or even in the church, in the, in the church history, it comes from God's people being more repentant. Like that's where it starts. If there's more dramatic change in the people of God, you're a much brighter light to the world and to draw people in to transform them as well. When there's true repentance, if you, <laughs> if you are saying, how can I reach my neighbor how can I affect my friend? What can I do genuinely to transform somebody that I really care about? The best thing you can do for that, if we look at the history of scripture and the church, is for you to repent. It's for you to be genuinely transformed. For you to put the time and work into seeing God and requesting God and humbling yourself and asking God to change who you are. Because if that happens, people notice that. Like, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So there's more than just rejoicing in heaven. There's more than just rejoicing in heaven. There's actually effects and change and benefits and glory on earth when Christians repent, when they change. Amen. It's wonderful. And then that leads up to the prodigal son, and we'll end with this. <clears throat> what a story. Right? Like, the reason why everybody knows it is because it pulls on the heartstrings and it's so impactful. He goes and blows all of his inheritance on hookers, you know? Like, I don't know if that's a PC term, but he blows all of his inheritance, like in the worst possible way. And while he's yet far off, dad is stoked, <laughs> right? Like, what love is that? Like how distant are you from God? How much have you ignored things that God is calling you to repent? How many times have you failed? What have you squandered in your life that God has given to you? And he's like, just 
turn towards him. And in, this, in the story of the prodigal son, he says, Lord, his father, I've sinned against you and against God. He has an inward humility. He doesn't say, no, you haven't. He just says, welcome. Yes, I know. I'm aware. <laughs> it's true. You've highly offended me, but you were dead and now you're alive. You were wandering away and now you've turned and you've come to me. I love that. Come here. Let's put the best robes on. Let's throw a party. It's such a wonderful familial story of like I just abusing the father-son relationship in every possible way. And just, just the, the fact that he would turn and come back to dad, that's a picture of our heavenly father. This is Jesus trying to communicate his love towards us when we repent just a little bit. And we humble ourselves. He says, welcome, come. I love you. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate because you're striving to enter. I hope that encourages you. Amen. I hope at the end of the day you can say, man, I have kind of messed up. I do need true repentance. But any effort you put towards God, he's excited about that. He's so welcoming. You could have squandered it all. Like, that's the cool part. Like, he didn't say, he didn't say, Dad, I brought some of it back, <laughs> you know? No, I'd been unclean even with pigs. Like, there's, you know, like, there's a lot of cultural things kind of laden in that story. Like, I've done everything possible wrong. I hope that encourages you, you know, that no matter where you're at in repentance, no matter if you've been ignoring something for a month or for 15 years, any effort we put towards God to be transformed, to bear fruit, to turn back to him, to see true repentance in our heart and minds, any effort that we put towards him, man, he just welcomes that with open arms. He sees you coming far off and is already excited that you're drawing near to him. I hope the love that God has for you is something that genuinely leads you to repentance. Let's pray and ask for his help in that. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for your good character. Lord, even as we prayed this morning before our service, we need your help to understand the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's absurd. The, the tiniest effort towards you is something that causes you to celebrate, Lord. It's true. We have sinned against you and are unworthy to be called your son. Yet because of Christ, because of your love for us, we are worthy in him. We are your beloved children. And nothing can separate us from that. Help us love that, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.